Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Good to be back, by the way, this week. Just being here last week. Had a great time of fellowship with the First Baptist Church of Delaware, Oklahoma. We always enjoy our time over there that we get to spend with them. Anytime we get to spend with them. Lovely, lovely bunch of people over there. And, uh, Brother Jonathan Wigner, who is the pastor there, he, him and his wife, it was, uh, they were on an anniversary trip, vacation, and, uh, so I filled in for him over there. Back today, and back in Galatians, matter of fact, what I preached over there last week actually would have been a good in-between message for us here, uh, in-between what we talked about last time, and, uh, we looked at uh, verses 25 through verse 1 of chapter 6, 525 through 6-1, last time we were together. And we talked about, as it says there in verse 26, let us not be desirous of vain glory. We spent some time talking about how uh, if we live in the Spirit, we're not going to be living under the works of the law. We're not going to be looking to the law for acceptance. We're not going to be looking to uh, the law for righteousness that we have uh, as a new uh, uh, creation as new children of God as as that, those which are born from above we um, look to Christ in faith that his righteousness has been given to us and that we are under that righteousness before God and therefore whenever God looks at us he sees perfect obedience he sees uh no sin. And so we looked at how we walk in the Spirit or if we're led by the Spirit, if we live in the Spirit, all those phrases that have to do with looking to Christ and having faith in Christ, that whenever we do that, uh, then we are not going to be envious of one another or provoking one another, which we found also in verse 26. Let us not be desirous of vain glory provoking one another and envying one another. And we saw how in a, within churches, especially whenever you're preaching the law, what it's easy to do is, well, that person, as soon as you get, because our pride, it wants to jump up, take front center. And whenever you tell somebody they've done something wrong, what's the first thing they want to do? They immediately want to defend themselves. They immediately want to make uh, uh, excuses on why they did what they did, or that they didn't do it, make an argument that that wasn't me that did it. That was somebody else that did it. Always wanting to lay blame on someone else or something else. And so whenever you preach the law within an environment of people who are prideful, that's what that is whenever we get defensive, when someone tells us that we've done wrong, and we get defensive, that's pride. The Bible says that God resisteth the proud. Pride is not a great thing, okay? Uh, pride is something that uh, the Bible overwhelmingly speaks against. The Bible says to take heed how you stand, lest you fall. That pride cometh before fall. Meaning that whenever you become puffed up, whenever you become proud, thinking that you are something that you are really not, then... Your demise, your failure is surely to come 
Because anybody who pumps themselves up and thinks they are something when they're actually not, then when the course of the natural man that God has put us in, this flesh, when the course of nature, and that's what I mean by that, not some fatalistic thing, but when the course of nature, how we are in Adam, whenever it comes around and takes its, its uh, rears its head up, we sin, we fail, we fall. Just as soon as you point your finger at somebody else, you got all your other fingers pointing right back at you, right? We've heard that little illustration before. Whenever you start pointing your finger at somebody else, just wait because it's not going to be too long until somebody's going to be able to point their finger at you. That's what Paul is saying here. He says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit and not be desirous of vainglory, not be desiring of pumping ourselves up or making us something that we are not. That's not what worship is about, for one. Number one, whenever we come, I preached to Delaware last week. What we, when we come to worship, the reason that we come to worship is to worship God. It's not about making me feel good. I didn't come here so that somebody would sing a song that would just bless my heart uh, and uh, uh, you know sound real good, make me want to you know put them on a record label. It's not about a funny preacher. It's not about a good storytelling preacher. It's not about you know anything other than God. We come to worship God. So if we come together, as Paul was writing to this church, and whenever they come together, and they're hearing this law being preached, and therefore, in that, they begin to become judgmental one to another, because the law only brings judgment. Whether it's upon yourself, or in you, towards other people, the law always brings judgment. We're always judging each other by the law, by the law, by the law. We're judging each other. Well, you didn't do that. Well, you didn't do that. Well, hey, what about you? You didn't do that. And so Paul says, let's, let's not be desirous of vainglory. Whenever we desire to pump ourselves up and to make us holy and righteous, religious-looking to other people, all we're doing is setting ourselves up for a fall. All we're doing is being hypocritical. We're all sinners for all the sin and falling short of the glory of God. If anyone says that he has not sinned, he makes God out to be a liar. We are full of sin, Paul said, that in me dwelleth no good thing, and in you dwelleth no good thing either. And so there's no room, no place, no, uh, no reason for us to ever pump ourselves up in pride and vainglory and boast it over other people. And that's exactly what the law breeds whenever it is being preached for righteousness. Now the law should be preached, but it should be preached for the purpose that it was there. The law was given to reveal the sin that is in us, to leave us no way of escape from it, that it is final. Those who, those who sin shall die. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth, it will surely die. There is no there's no getting around that. If you are a sinner, if you have sinned, and we all have, <clears throat> the wages of that is death. We all are deserving of the wrath of God. But praise the Lord that the grace of God has bestowed salvation upon his people. That he has redeemed them by sending Jesus in their place. And so we shouldn't be puffed up about anything because it's all about Christ and this is what Paul is getting to. That's what preaching grace is about. Preaching law lawfully 
by driving the man to his knees in utter desperation to look to Christ alone because he knows that in him dwells no good thing. To drive that man to his knees is what the law is all about, to reveal and expose and to and to manifest what sin is there that you cannot attain to the righteousness of God. You cannot keep God's acceptance with your righteous acts of good and whatever you think is good. It's not going to happen. So if you try to preach the law for righteousness and acceptance before God, all that's going to do is stir up pride. All that pride is going to do is start pointing to other people. You don't weigh up as good as I do. You don't weigh up as good as I do. Remember the rich young ruler that came to Jesus? There's all these people gathered around Jesus. He's talking. <coughs> and this young man came up and asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus began to give him some law. What did he start doing? He told him the law. He was going to expose his sinfulness to this man through the law. So he said, well, do this, do this, do this. And that young man said, all those things have I kept from my youth. Now, he didn't really do those. He didn't keep all those things from uh, his youth. He thought he had kept those things from his youth, even as Paul, as he said, whenever he was, before his conversion, Paul said that he was the, the chiefest of uh, prophets that keeping the law, he was without blame. Well, we know that's not true. That wouldn't mean that he would have been sinless, and he wasn't sinless. He had broken the law. Matter of fact, what he was doing was breaking the law uh, before, uh, whenever he was gathering up all the Christians and killing them. However, uh, Paul, uh, even though he says that, even though uh, we talk about that, then, you know, uh, that doesn't mean that he was actually blameless. That doesn't mean he actually uh, uh, kept the full law. So, <clears throat> sorry guys, I just lost my train of thought on that. But anyway, uh, whenever we begin to preach the law, we, uh, sorry about that. whenever we preach the law, it breeds pride, and pride then looks and points to everybody else. And so that rich young ruler, he came and he said, hey, I've kept all these things. That's where my train of thought was. Uh, the rich young ruler said, hey, we, uh, you know, I've kept all these things. And so Jesus just kept giving him. He said, all right, well, if that's the case, then you call me a good master. There's only one who's good. That's God. So let me tell you something. Go and sell everything that you have and follow me. The guy went away because he was it's sad because he had a lot of things. And so he didn't necessarily go do that. And at that point, you know, Jesus said, you know, anybody that's rich, it's hard for them to get into the kids. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. Now, Jesus wasn't saying, just talking about men who had a lot of money. He's saying someone who is rich in righteousness of their own. People who think that they perform or they, they uh, provide a righteousness before God that, that God is pleasing with and acceptable, you know, they think they're rich. We, we feel that we're rich, not, like I said, not in, in currency and money, but we are rich in righteousness. And this man believed that he was rich in righteousness. Now, he was rich in money, but he was rich in righteousness, and that's what Jesus was showing. And he's also showing people that have a lot of wealth sometimes, the problem with them is they feel, hey, we don't have to worry 
about anything. How many of us is in here, and I'm sure every one of us said, man, if I only had a million dollars, we wouldn't have to worry about anything anymore, you know? Well, that's not true. In fact, I've heard it said that the majority of uh, uh, suicides among adults are mostly among people that have wealth. You know, there's more suicide rate among those who are wealthy than there are among those who are poor. So, being rich doesn't solve all your problems. But Jesus was trying to drive home a spiritual thing because whenever he said that, it's easier for a man to go through, uh, a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Immediately, one of the disciples asked him, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. So they automatically knew. He wasn't talking about that man's pocketbook. He was talking about that man's spiritual understanding. That man thought he had a, he was spiritually rich in keeping the law and providing for himself uh, a righteousness. Matter of fact, we always read this, and I'm not so convinced it's not opposite of how we read it. A lot of times whenever we read about that rich young ruler, we read about him coming and saying, you know, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, do all these things. And he said, well, I've done all those things. And Jesus said, do this. Now, I've done all that. And Jesus said, well, then do this. He walks away all sad. I almost picture it as this man has come to Jesus and he says, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Thinking, hey, look, I've already done all these things. I've already provided a righteousness. I've been keeping the law. So what is it that I have to do for eternal life? Because I'm already doing all this. And Jesus kind of used the law as it's intended and exposed his sinfulness. He exposed that he wasn't perfect, that he didn't have a righteousness that was before God. Now, I will say this, and I didn't mean to preach on the rich man ruler, but he walked away, and the Bible says when he walked away, he said that Jesus loved him. Now, I got to think that that man eventually was converted and become Christ. Because if Jesus loved him, then that means that he would have been one of God's elect. Because that's the only ones that God loves, is his elect. So that man surely had to have been elect of God who had yet to be converted, uh, but yet walked away sad because he had much wealth and he wasn't ready to give all that up. But whenever the Lord comes and changes the mind, changes the heart, gives a new desire within us to walk after Christ and not after our own self, then we come willingly. And so that man, I believe, eventually would have been converted. But saying all that, leading into verse 1, Brethren, if any man be overtaken in fault, ye which are spiritual, those who are walking in the spiritual, not looking at keeping a righteousness before God by law-keeping, but look at, looking at Christ as our righteousness, those are the spiritual men. Those are the ones who are to go to those who are thinking that they're performing a righteousness. And what does it say here? Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself in the spirit of meekness. Now, I want you to pay close attention to that because we're going to talk about that today in our passages that we look at. In the spirit of meekness, whenever we go to somebody who is overtaken in a fault. Now, what fault was these brethren overtaken in? Remember the context. We talked about this last time we were together. 
What's the context of the fault? Anybody know? The context is what Paul's been talking about in all of Galatians. The fault that they are believing that they can provide a righteousness through the law. Remember the Judaizers came in, began to preach them that you still had to be circumcised and you still had to keep the law of Moses to be saved or to stay, be, stay saved? And Paul is coming in to correct them on that. No, that is not the gospel. That is not what is taught. We are not under the law. We are under grace. That the law is dead to us. And we are married to another, which is Christ. He is now our husband and not the law. And so the fault that is in verse 1, that is in context with everything, first and foremost is self-righteousness. The fault of self-righteousness. Thinking that we are keeping the law, thinking that we are providing righteousness to stay accepted with God. This is the thing that Paul is saying, ye who are spiritual, you who understand, who have been given to look to Christ and to know that your obedience is from Him. He is your obedience before God. And that He is the one who took your sin and in the flesh condemned that and that you are no longer under the law of God and that it doesn't have any more power over you. It doesn't have any more condemnation over you. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we look to that. And so those men are to go to those who are seeking that self-righteous uh, standing before God. And it says here that we are to go and restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. And so that is why, if you remember when we were last time together, I said it's unfortunate that verse 1 is in chapter 6 and that these verses didn't just flow right straight together and that they put this chapter verse break. The reason being is because we have to have that mentality of what God has said. Those who are spiritual, those who are looking unto Jesus for their righteousness alone are to go to those who are still troubled by law-keeping and in a spirit of meekness restore them. In a spirit of meekness, brethren, that is how we are to approach any kind of discipline. That is how we are to approach any kind of debate among each other. Uh, that is how we are to approach any kind of discussion on doctrinal matters. If we have a disagreement on doctrinal things, we are to go, but we are to go in a meek way. Why do we go in a meek way? Well, number one, we have to realize that we could be wrong. If you always have that in the back of mind, I could possibly be wrong, you'll be a little more careful in the way that you do things. Let me give you an example. I work on x-ray equipment. Some of these pieces of x-ray equipment uh, can be, you know, 400, and, uh, 400 volts, 420 volts, 480 volts uh, of electricity inside this thing. And then whenever gone through the generator, it could be thousands of volts of uh, electricity coming through there. And so whenever I go in there and I troubleshoot these things, even after, you know, all these years of me doing this work, I still come with a little fear and trepidation as I go in there and start testing these things because you get on one of those little wires or one of those little pieces that you think, hey, that ain't going to matter much. And all of a sudden, because you can't see electricity. <laughs> you can feel it, but you can't see it. And you get on that thing, it can kill you instantly, kill you. 
And so whenever I go into that, I go in knowing, listen, that can kill me. That right there can kill me. And so I'm going to be careful whenever I'm going about doing this, even though I know better, I'm going to be careful in what I'm doing because if I'm not careful, then I can end up like somebody who has no idea what they're doing. Okay? And so I go into that also knowing that I don't know everything about electricity. I don't know everything about generators and x-ray stuff. As long as I've been doing this, I still have a lot to learn about. But yet, whenever I go in there, I say, hey, I could be wrong. I think this thing right here has not got electricity running on it. So let me see if I can touch that. Well, no, no. If I don't know, what do I do? I go over and I shut all the power off to that just to make sure. Okay? Why? Because I could be wrong. Why do I, whenever I confront somebody with something that is disagreeable between us or if something that I think is sin, whenever I do that, we come in a, in a way of meekness and love. And listen, let me just say this. <clears throat> that to correct somebody or to come and reprove and rebuke somebody according to Scripture is a godly thing to do. That is something that the Lord has told us that we are to be doing with each other. And if you truly love somebody and you come with them and correct them where they err in God's word, that should be something not only is, comes from a meek love out of our heart because we love them and we come in a meek way because we know that we are susceptible to all sins as well and that could easily be us had it not be for God's grace restraining us from this. And even if it isn't that, I surely have problems in this area. I have problems in that area. So we come knowing that we're of the same thing. We're all sinners. And so when I come to you, I don't have no reason to stand and platform myself up higher than you because I have sin in my life. But whenever we come and correct somebody with God's word and love, that truly is a sign of love to them. And if you're a child of grace, you should be thankful that somebody comes and brings that to your attention. Now, someone may come in a self-righteous way and bring something out of context with God's Word. At that point, you need to discuss what God's Word really says. But, you know, still, that should be something of love. So Paul here is saying, we do this in meekness, considering thyself, why? Lest thou be tempted also. So, we start in verse 2 today, and let's work down, because that has bearing on what we're going to talk about. The scripture says, bear ye, that word ye again is a sing, or is a, a, a plural, but it's a, a singular plural, if you allow me that. Uh, it means a specific group of people. The word ye is plural in Greek, and that word ye means a group, or more than one, but it means a specific group group of people. It's just not ye as in everybody that's out there. Whenever he was speaking to the Galatians, he was talking to them directly. Ye, you within that church, ye, Jesus, uh, uh, I used this last week, this example. Last week, uh, Jesus uh, said that, hey, go ye therefore and teach all nations. Who was he talking to? Everybody in the world? No. He was talking to the church. Go ye therefore, teach all nations. Baptizing them. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So, he says, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
So bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if any man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. Now verse 3 is saying the same thing as verse 26, basically. Let us not be desirous of vain glory. If a man thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. To pump yourself up in vain glory. What is vain glory? Well, that's whenever you are providing self-righteousness before God and you're thinking that that's accomplishing something. The Bible says that's vain glory. You're bringing glory upon yourself and that glory isn't going to shine very very great to it. In vain, you do that. What, what does that mean? Whenever we say you did that in vain. So you did that for no reason. You did that with no... There is absolutely nothing you're going to do that's going to uh, do anything. If we went out there with that barbecue and it was pouring down rain, I mean pouring down rain, and I open that thing up and I put my wood in there and I start try to start, start a fire on that, and I'm telling everybody, hey, I'm going to barbecue today, I'm going to barbecue today. Everyone's out there probably saying, man, that guy is nuts. He's not going to accomplish anything doing what he's doing. Why? We can't build a fire in rain. It's vain glory. It's vain to even try to do that. You're doing it in vain. There's no reason behind it. There's no reward in it. There is nothing to it. You're doing it for no reason. You're doing it for a reason in your mind, but you're not doing it for any profit. It's not going to profit you to do that. That's what vain glory is. Whenever we pump ourselves up or pride ourselves in front of other people, it is for no reason because whenever it's compared to Christ, who is the one who we will be compared with, who is compared with, when we compare ourselves with Christ, anything that we do, the Bible says, is as filthy rags compared to him who is holy. So he says here... Bear you one another's burden, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoiced in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Now, we're going to, well, I didn't mean to read five. I was going to stop at four. We'll pick up a five next week. Now, before we get really more into this, and we may bleed this over into next week also, for if any man think of himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. That's self-deceit. You are deceiving yourselves whenever you think that you can do something for righteousness for God. Now, I was thinking about some of these things this morning, and uh, I thought, you know, I think I'll, because it says here, it says, bear ye one another's burdens. And then it goes right into, uh, if any man think of himself more than he ought to. <clears throat> There's a couple of things I can get out of that. Number one, somebody can pump themselves up and think, well, I don't have any burdens. I'm carrying along just fine. I'm doing all right. We think we're cruising along. <clears throat> so, bear ye one another's burdens is like, well, just toughen up. Look at me. I'm doing all right. Just be like me. Quit acting like that and be like me. We look at others. Again, we start doing the finger pointing thing. Whenever we try to 
present ourselves before God as something, or present ourselves to the church as something that we're really not. What happens? We begin to be prideful, and we begin to pump ourselves up. But it says here, bear you one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what is the law of Christ? Well, remember, it's love God and love your brothers as yourself. Okay? So, to fulfill the law of Christ, we are to bear one another's burdens. So I thought, well, let's look up burdens and see what burdens is, talks about in the Bible. And there's a bunch of places where the, where the word burden is found, or burdens is found. But one thing particularly stood out to me, and especially as we looked through Galatians and dip, dipping back into Romans, where Paul had said some similar things. Um, but we find in Galatians that um, these burdens are reaching back, again, into the context of the burden of the law. Remember, the, the, the Bible used the word yoke. We talked about that, that we, that we are no longer under that yoke. Uh, remember, uh, Paul in Galatians was going back to his time whenever him and Barnabas went to the uh, council in Jerusalem, and they said, you know, why should we put any yoke upon them that our forefathers couldn't keep, neither can we? So why put a yoke upon them? Well, they use that word often to describe the law. And so whenever we see here in verse 6, the burdens that he's taken, that he's talking about, is talking about the law, and or more specifically, our breaking the law, our sin of breaking the law. That is the burden that the child of grace feels all the time. See, the righteous man, the man who has not been converted and shown his sin, that man... He believes like that Pharisee that stood and said, I'm thankful, Lord, that you've not made me like this poor wretched sinner here that's begging for mercy, you know, that you've made me to be righteous, holy. See, in pride, we begin to think like that. And uh, he says here, he says, bear you one another's burdens. And we find that that is talking about sins. And it's hard to bear someone else's sins whenever you think you don't sin because the first thing you want to go to is judgment upon the other person. You want to judge them for their sin because that makes you look even better, not only into your own mind, but before others. That's why we always want to talk about people behind their back, about how bad they are and what they do. Why? Because it makes us feel better about ourselves. I feel better about myself whenever I do that. You know, I run into that in our business a lot of times. You know, we've got this one competitor whose name I won't mention, but that runs around Arkansas and uh, it well, actually it was when I first come to work for my company and uh, anyway, they were running around telling everybody that uh, our company all we did was just processors you know, chemical processors and we didn't do anything digital and one of the main reasons why my boss hired me is because I had some digital background and so I could work on <coughs> digital things and had worked on PAC systems and things like that. And so that was kind of one of the things that drew him to hire me is because I brought a skill set that they didn't have at the at the job there, and X-Ray was moving into the digital age during that time, or had already been moving into the digital age. So that was what I brought with. But we had a competitor that was running around Arkansas that was telling everybody, hey, you know, this guy... Uh, this guy that they got working for them, all he is is just a processor guy. He ain't a digital guy. So that got 
things roll in people's minds. Say, well, they're going to buy digital from this guy and just call us if they have something that's not digital. And so whenever we went in doing digital, uh, uh, whenever we go do a, a demonstration of our equipment and everything, or I would go in there on a search call if they couldn't get the other people out, they would say, you know, those people told us that you guys are just a processor company. We didn't even know you guys did digital. I said, oh, yeah, we're a digital company. And uh, what, what, was, what was they doing? They was telling them making someone else look bad so it would make them look good. That's what they were doing. Well, that's an essential... Essentially, what we do is we always are looking at other people that are not keeping the law, or we look for people who are not keeping the law. Okay? We are looking for people who are not doing the law so that we can point that out so that we can feel better about themselves. And I'm just as guilty as anybody else about that. But that's not what the Lord is calling us to do. He is saying, Bear ye one another's burdens. Bear, each, bear up each another's sin. We all are in the same boat. We should be able to sympathize whenever a person falls into sin. We should be able to sympathize because we ourselves fall into sin. And he's saying, bear you one another's burdens. That's how you fulfill the law of God. If you want to love your brother as yourself, as you, uh, your neighbor as yourself, if you want to love the brethren, the way that you do that is you bear their burdens with them. The Bible says that we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. We are bearing each other's burdens, whether it's the burden of sin, the burden of sorrow. These things are the things that we bear up with. And what does that mean? It comes alongside of them and be there for them. Console them. You may not have all the words to say. Sometimes as a pastor and people are having issues and problems and going through things, I don't have an answer for them. And if you guys know me, I don't like silence whenever there's a conversation. It kind of bothers me for there to be an awkward silence there. And so I just keep talking, keep talking, keep talking. If they don't talk, then I'll keep talking. And there's a lot of times I don't have anything to say. I don't know what to say. That's whenever I feel like I have to say something. And so then what do I start doing? I start talking dumb. Okay, I start talking about dumb things. Making up things the best I can. Sometimes it's just being there. You just be there. Knowing that people care for you. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to... I don't know how to... uh, uh, advise you on this, but just know this, we love you and we know what it's like to go through things like this and we're here for you. And whatever you need from us, we're here for you. Okay, that's bearing one another's burdens. But let's talk about bearing one another's burdens of sin. How do we do that? How do you bear someone's sin for them? And is it even sin that we're talking about, preacher? Does the Bible even talk about that being sin? Well, I think we'll see that in a second if I can get there. That's what I was trying to get to to begin with. <clears throat> yes, we can bear one another's burdens. How do we do that? Well, I preached last week to the people over in Delaware that whenever we come to worship, one of the reasons we come to worship is to worship God. The other one is to be equipped or to be uh, edified uh, for the work of the ministry. And then the last thing is so that we might fellowship with one another, love in loving one another, fellowshipping with one another, and all that comes around God's word. We do that with God's word. How do we, how do we come and comfort one another? Because the Bible says, "Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people." How do we do that? Well, how do we lift someone's burden up? How do we comfort them? That's what that would be. To comfort somebody would be to lift up somebody's burden, or to take on their burden, or to bear one another's burdens. 
How would we do that? Well, how do you do that with sin? We come alongside of them and say, I've been in your shoes. I know where you're at. But listen, this is what God's Word says, and that's not right. We love you. We want, we want, we want to see you repent of that. But no, that is not what God's Word says. God's Word is against that and everything and, and, and everything. And we come and bear their burdens up, but the main way that we do that is by telling what Christ has done. Comfort you, comfort you, my people. Tell the people what the Lord has done. See, the Lord has taken on their sin. Yes, you've sinned, and, but listen, while we in our heart don't want to do that, and to the best of our ability, we're going to keep try to keep from doing that. Ultimately, it's God who, by grace, gives us restraint on that. But our, our mindset, like Paul, is, you know, I desire to do good. I want to do good. Even though I know that every time I try to do good, evil's with me. My heart and my desire and, and my service to God, in my mind, in my spirit, is to Him. That's what my mind is set on. My flesh can't accomplish it, but that's what my mind is set on. And so we tell each other that the Lord has taken on that sin and that we have no condemnation over us. And that we shouldn't continue to to uh, grovel in that, but we should look to Christ and be rejoicing in the fact that He has taken on our sins. Bear you one another's burden, and so fulfill the law of Christ of serving the brethren. We serve each other through the Word of God, through specifically the work of Christ. Now, turn with me, if you would, to Psalms 38. told you that I did a little quick study this morning on the word burden because that was just really sticking out to me for some reason and maybe it's because that's what the Lord wanted me to go go towards this morning well we know it is or we'll be going there right Psalms 38 and look with me at uh, if you would at verse 4 the psalmist writes, For mine iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. So here we see that the word burden is, is uh, uh, equated to iniquities. For mine iniquities have gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. So we see a biblical principle here that one of the burdens or one of the ways that burden is used is in relation to our iniquities. And our iniquities are truly more than we can bear. It says here, he says, they are too heavy for me. I can't bear up underneath all the sin that I continue to experience. And that's how the child of grace is. Whenever we have been given spiritual understanding to see our sinfulness, it is too heavy for us to bear. We know that there is no hope in our law-keeping. There is no hope in our trying to obey and to be pleasing to God in the flesh. And that that becomes a burdensome thing to our heart, knowing that we cannot uh, be accepted of God based on our performance on anything that we do. And so, just like the psalmist says, they are too heavy for me. The, my iniquities have gone over my head. They are a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Is that where you find yourselves today, brother? You find yourselves overwhelmed by your burden? 
of sin? Or do you think, you know, I'm doing all right. I'm okay. You know, I'm getting by. You know, I don't think I'm doing too bad. You know, the child of grace is going to be shown the depth of that sin that they cannot uh, overcome. Look with me at Job chapter 7. Job chapter 7 and verse 20. Job writes, or in Job it's written, it says, I have sinned. What shall I do unto thee, O thou preserver of men? Now who's he crying out to? He's crying out to God. He's the preserver of men. Why hast thou set me as a mark against thee, so that I am a burden to myself. What's he saying there? Why hast thou set me as a mark against thee, so that I am a burden to myself? <clears throat> Anybody remember what uh, what the definition of sin is? The, the that's the that's the uh, that's the wages of sin. What's the definition? Of sin. What does the word sin mean? You remember, I, I, I said that it used to it was an old archery term. To miss the mark. Okay, the word sin is to miss the mark. Okay, the mark being the bullseye, the tar- the the intended target, the the center of the bullseye is that's where we're aiming for. That's the standard. That's where we're going. Right there. Okay. That's the mark. He says here, O thou preserver of me and God, why hast thou set me as a mark against thee? Why are you setting me against you? So that I am a burden to myself. See, I see the travail of my soul. I see what I cannot do. I see that you, the standard, I cannot keep that. And you have put me against you so that I will always be reminded I'm not good enough. See, that's what the law is there for. The law is a reflection of what is holy and what is right and what is true and it is always there to remind us that we are not. And so God has in his decree, in his predestination, has predestinated our vanity. The Bible says that he has uh, uh, he has subjected all the creation, and specifically us, to vanity. He has subjected us to that. That was his intent, his burden. I know some people, they don't like that. You mean to tell me you're preaching that God predestinated sin? Absolutely God predestinated sin. I find it very compelling that people cannot look in the scriptures and take the scriptures for what they say. And the Bible clearly says that God has predestinated sin and evil and that it takes place at his uh, decree. It takes place at his willingness. He is willing that those things take place. Otherwise, he would not have decreed it or predestinated it. And some people say, well, no, that's just God permitting that to happen for his purpose. That's not getting yourself out of the predicament of the fact that if God 
permitted it, then that means he willed it to happen. And if he willed it to happen, he willed it to happen because it was part of his purpose. And he predestinated all things according to the counsel of his will. So I just cannot find anybody getting past that. So did God predestinate this affliction that Job was going through? Did God predestinate the fact that we are pitted against his holiness and that our righteousness would not measure up? Absolutely he did. That's why he created Adam natural. The Bible said that he created Adam natural of the earth, earthy, and that natural man could not receive the things of God, nor can he, because they are spiritually discerned. God has made man so that he cannot understand God or seek God out or know who God is or understand what God does. God has made man that way so that man cannot boast in his own salvation, that man cannot provide for himself his own salvation, that man would be destitute and without hope except for Christ. God has made natural man so that he cannot obtain salvation, that he cannot attain a righteousness. God has made it such so that Christ would be glorified in the redemption from the satisfactory substitutionary work that he accomplished on behalf of his people that God gave him. And so here, in Job we see, Thou hast set me as a mark against thee, and that I am a burden to myself. What is that? My continual missing the mark. But turn back to Psalms 55. Psalms 55. See, the law kills. That's all it tells us to do. Or tells us about ourselves is that we are unrighteous. And so our burdens that are heavy, our burdens that we cannot bear, the burdens that have overcome us, those burdens that are so heavy that it's become such a yoke that we as access cannot bear them. In Psalms 55, look with me at verse 22. The scripture says, Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Who are the righteous? Not the ones who have bore their own burden. Not the ones who have provided a righteousness of their own, because there are none. The righteous are those whom God has elected in Christ Jesus and whose righteousness is the imputed righteousness of Christ on them. It says, cast thy burden upon the Lord. Cast your sin, your inadequacy. Cast your, uh, your failure to hit the mark. Cast all this that you see in this natural man that's in this flesh that cannot do and please God. Cast all that upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. Well, how does he sustain you? By telling you over and over and over and over and over again, I am your righteousness. It is finished. I have done all that the Father has asked me to do. And guess what? I'm your representative. I'm the one standing as your substitute in your place. So if I've done it, God reckons it that you have done it. 
So if I have kept all the law in my obedience throughout my lifetime, if I've done that, guess what? You've done that because I did it in your place. I did it for you. As your representative in your stead, I did it for you. It's been accomplished. So your record says perfect obedience. And yes, you deserve to die. I did that for you too. You deserve to die because of your sin, and God will not let sin go unpunished. So he punished me as your substitute, and you didn't have to be punished. So you was punished, but it was in me. You were punished through my flesh. Your flesh that deserved this, my flesh took upon you. And it took the full wrath of God. So it says here, Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He does that through reminding you of his work. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. See, that's what keeps us, brethren. That's what continues to to sustain us is the preaching of the gospel. Go with me to Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28. Matthew 11 and verse 28. Jesus says, Come unto me all that labor and are heavy laden. Heavy laden. That just means the word laden. Uh means just holding something. You know, something that's got, that's been piled on, you know. Like you guys took all your dirty clothes and put it on top of the hamper. That hamper will be laden with your clothes. Okay? Covered. Weighed down. It says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Those who are trying to work for righteousness. Those who are full of dead works. And heavy laden with the burden that whatever I do is not good enough for God. I keep trying and wanting to do, but that which I want to do, I don't do, and that which I do, I don't do. Because the flesh. Remember that argument in Paul. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and guess what? I'm going to tell you what more you can do to make it even better. Is that what he said? He said, no, come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Rest is not work. It's the opposite. Rest is not get up and go and do this. Maintain this. Bear this. Be laden with this. Now, rest is rest. He says, I will give you rest. If you come unto me with your heavy labor and your... uh, uh, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke. There's that word again. Take my yoke upon you. Now remember, we said that the word yoke is often interchangeable in in the scriptures as meaning the commandments, right? Commands of God, the law. So Jesus is saying, Come unto me, all you who weary and are heavy laden, under the yoke of Moses, under the yoke of Sinai, under the yoke of Hagar, 
All you who are heavy laden under that law, come unto me, and I will give you rest from that law. And he says, now take my yoke upon you, take my commands upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. There's that word meek again. So even Jesus, who was an example for us, shows that whenever we take up this yoke of his, that we should do it in meekness and lowliness. Now what's the commands of Christ? What's the commands that he gives us? To love God and to love our brethren. Right? To love the brethren. He says, Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. So that's how we do that. And ye shall find rest unto your souls, souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So here you see, he says, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why? Because to do the commands that he has commanded us to do cannot be done without the Holy Spirit of God. We have to have the Holy Spirit of God. It's Him that causes us to do these things. That's why it's so easy. It's because it's Him in us. The burden is light because it's Him who is sustaining us and doing it for us, in us, through us. It's Him. To keep the law, we cannot do because the flesh cannot do anything pleasing to God. Everything that's done, even though it may be motivated by our mind, as Paul says, it's motivated in my mind to do it for God and I think it's God that's doing it through me. And it may be God that's doing it through me. But the fact remains, it's still tainted with my flesh that's doing it. And everything that my flesh does is not pleasing to God. Everything that I do in my natural self is not pleasing to God. That's why I said, to will is present with me, but how to do those things I find not. Why? Because sin is always present with me. Not that it's lurking over my shoulder, but it's because it's in everything that I do. So if we come to Christ and we cast that burden upon Him and take up His burden, we find out, hey, His burden is light. We just trust in Him. We just have faith in Him that He has done everything for us and that He will, through us, shed that love abroad in our heart so that we can love Him and so that we can love our brethren. We are trusting in what Christ... Again, it goes back to faith, brethren. That the God-given faith, the fruit of the Spirit, is faith. It's love. It's joy. It's long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, temperance. All those things are the fruit of the Spirit. And those things will be produced in the child of grace by the Holy Spirit. Now, one last verse before we conclude here, and it's in 2 Chronicles. So find your way back to 2 Chronicles. Now, I found this in my study this morning uh, of the word burden, and I'm sure I've read this verse before, but it didn't ever really hit me. The Lord never really did reveal much about this until I was reading through it this morning. But I think that this right here is a perfect verse to illustrate what the Lord has done. Now, it's going to tell us in type and foreshadow, right? It's going to tell us in symbolism. 
But we're not going to look at the natural. We're going to look at the spiritual side of it, right? There is a natural and physical, historical account of what we're fixing to read. But we're going to look at spiritual things with spiritual eyes, if the Lord is so giving us that. Look at verse 3. 2 Chronicles 35. Sorry. 2 Chronicles 35. Start looking with me at verse 3. Now, if you guys remember... Matter of fact, if you, if you will, look at verse 2. It says, And he sent the priests in their charges and encouraged them to the service of the house of the Lord. Okay, so the Levites were given, uh, you know, all the, all the uh, children of Israel, all, all the uh, different uh, groups within them, all the tribes that was within Israel. Uh, God had given them certain promises and blessings and given them a portion of land. Each, each tribe had their own land. But see, God called a certain group of people out of Israel to be priests. And they were called the Levites. They were all of Aaron's sons. Okay? And they were to be the Levites. They were set apart for the service of the house of the Lord. They didn't receive any land. They didn't receive any way of making uh, uh, their own provisions like the rest of the people did. Their whole service was dedicated solely to the worship and the sacrifice in the house of the Lord. Day and night, that's what they did. Okay, So they couldn't go out and raise a farm. They couldn't go out and raise a a herd of cattle or a herd of sheep or whatever it was that they herded. Uh, they didn't have the ability to do that. They were constantly working in the house of the Lord. So God gave them special provisions because they were Levites. And that's what the tithes and offerings were about, that those tithes and offerings were to go to help sustain those who were of the Levites. Okay? Because they couldn't go out and do it themselves. So the people brought tithes and offerings to give to the Levite or to the, to, at the house of the Lord. And the Levites took those. They also had a portion of being able to eat some of the things that were being brought in. So the Levites were taken care of through that way. Okay? But they were separate. And it was for the house of the Lord. It was for the service of the house of the Lord. Now, brethren, we, the Bible, teaches that we are priests unto God. As the children of God, we are priests unto God. Now, Christ is the great high priest. He is the, the high priest who makes that sacrifice, uh, as well as he is the sacrifice. But he makes that sacrifice. However, the Bible says that he has made us uh, uh, priests unto God. And where do we do that service? Where does the priest do the service? Well, the priest does the service in the house of God. Now here, it's talking about in this tabernacle, this form that they made. Okay, Whether it was in the tent or whether it was in the actual meeting place whenever they finally built that tabernacle of stone and everything, and it was permanent and not moved around. Whenever they finally made that, uh, the Lord met there and the priest did their service there. But it was in the house of the Lord. However, the Bible in the New Testament compares the people of God as the house of the Lord. That we are as lively stones, the Bible calls us. And so we see the, the spiritual look on this where he says, he set the priest in their charges and encouraged them to the service of the house of God. The Levites, that's us, okay? Those who are the children of God are priests unto God. And he has charged us or given us, 
encouraged us in the service of the house of the Lord. So he's charging us to serve the people of God, those who are the lively stones that make up the house of the Lord. But look at verse 3. He says, And said unto the Levites that taught all Israel, which were holy unto the Lord. Now, there's also our charge as the children of God, because it says here, And he said unto the Levites that taught all Israel, We have a responsibility to teach each other. All of Israel are all Levites. All Levites are part of the house of Israel. The house of Israel is talking about all the elect of God. That's all the elect of God. And the Levites are to teach every man, all of his brethren, to teach them what Christ has done. Why we always fellowship. Like I said last week, our fellowship is always around the doctrine of Christ. But he says here, And said unto the Levites that taught all Israel which were holy unto the Lord, Put the holy ark in the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, did build. Now again, we see a lot of symbolism here. Number one, we see the holy ark that's the Ark of the Covenant. That Ark represents Christ also. It says, Put the Holy Ark in the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, did. That's the house of God. That's talking about the tabernacle. Okay, the permanent tabernacle that was finally built. Not the one that they put up and took down, the tent of meeting or the tent tabernacle that they took down and put up and took down, put up everywhere God moved them around. But when he finally moved them to Jerusalem, and what happened? Solomon finally got to build that temple and it stayed there. That's the one he's talking about. And here he says, Put the holy ark in the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, did build. What is this representing to us? Well, for one, again, it's representing Christ. The ark represents Christ. On the ark was the place of, uh, of sacrifice. Christ is our sacrifice. That place of sacrifice was called the altar. Christ is our altar. That's where our sacrifice is killed. Christ is our sacrifice who was killed on our behalf. That solid bar of gold is where they would sprinkle the blood. Christ's blood was sprinkled on our behalf. But inside that ark, the Bible says, was the commands of God, the tablets of stone that Moses had brought down. They had put in this ark and they carried it around everywhere they go. And they put those at the center of the Holy of Holies, and that is where the the uh, um, uh, priest would go in, and he would offer that sacrifice. And whenever God would accept that sacrifice, his his uh, glory would come down, and it would hover over that Ark of that Covenant, and that's where his uh, glory shone. And it did that right over the Ark, and that tells us, as far as spiritual things is concerned, that Christ is at the center of worship. That Christ is at the center of redemption. That Christ is at the center of God's glory. And that God's glory hovers over the message of Christ as the sacrifice. It shows that Christ is the entrance, or excuse me, is the example of what God's glory is all about. God's glory was seen in the face of Jesus Christ. It shows that Christ and what he has done 
imbibed all of the law. The law was inside of that ark. And it was on display for everyone to see that that law is still a holy and righteous thing and that we should revere what it is for what it is. But Christ, that law was kept by him. And it was taken everywhere and was displayed to everybody, this law, but Christ has kept that law. And it was inside him. He kept the law. It was in his heart to do. He said that it was his heart to do what the Father had commanded him to do, that he rejoiced in doing those things that the Father had given him to do. And that was what that ark represented as well. It showed that Christ kept all of the law. And he did it for his people. But the law is there. It still is glaring with its holiness and its righteousness. But look what the rest of the verse says. It says, it says, put the holy ark in the house which Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel, did build. Notice that he built it. David's son built it. Christ is the one who built the temple. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is the one who builds his church. He's given power over all flesh to give eternal life to as many as God has given him. He's the one who's doing the building of this house, this spiritual house of God. And he says, It shall not be a burden upon your shoulders. See, they were carrying around this law. They were carrying around these tablets everywhere they went. They were put on display to always remind how often they had to continue to offer sacrifice because they kept breaking the law. It was a constant reminder to them of their failure And now God says, put this ark in the middle of the tabernacle on display for everyone to see that God looks at Christ alone. So he says here, it shall not be a burden upon your shoulders. No longer do you have to worry about looking at the law Why? Look what it says there. Serve now the Lord your God and his people. Isn't that what we've been seeing in all this? Love God, love your neighbors. How do you love God and love your neighbors? By serving them, bearing their burdens, by conveying the gospel to them. We comfort each other by preaching the gospel of what Christ has done and not telling everybody what we have to go do. Listen, the Holy Spirit will do that. I I, I read a guy on Facebook just this week, and he's begging people to give him uh, scripture verses uh, of why we can't have sermons on guys who believe like we do, that we ought to look at faith alone and everything, and that we trust Christ, and that's what walking in the Spirit is all about. He says, what about the rest of Ephesians? What about all that stuff there? Well, the whole context of Ephesians... The rest of Ephesians is the first part of Ephesians, which Christ has done it all. It's been given to us. It's already been laid to our account. Everything has been done to us. And we also learned that because Christ is in us and because we desire those things that are righteous, listen, that the Holy Spirit is going to restrain us, constrain us. It's going to do those things and is going to work in us to will and to do His good pleasure. The Spirit's going to do those things. 
but it isn't my job to tell you how much and what you need to do. The Holy Spirit is going to be, so we don't have to hound each other. I think there's a little bit of going from too far in one direction or too far in the other direction. But here he says, Serve now the Lord your God and His people. Whenever the burden has been lifted, whenever we have been given to see that our sin will, ne- or that our works will never hit the mark, and we see our sin, and that burden becomes real, and the gospel comes in, and God teaches us what Christ has done on our behalf, that burden is now lifted. We no longer have to look at that law glaring down upon us in that ark, and now we see outside the ark is or the. The, the commandments are contained within where we can't see and what's on the top. What do we see on the outside of that ark? We see the blood spilled on the mercy seat. We see mercy. We see grace. We see glory. We see satisfaction. We see perfection. We see that God has accepted everything that that thing represents and that represents Christ, our substitution. See, that ark was made out of wood, and then it was covered with gold. But that mercy seat was pure gold. There's no wood in it, no nothing else. It was pure gold. And that shows the work of Christ. Christ, while being the wood representing his flesh, his, his manhood, and the gold representing his deity, was all together as one. But whenever it comes to the mercy seat, there is nothing that the flesh can profit. It has to be pure gold. It has to be pure Christ. That pure gold was Christ and everything that Christ was on behalf of us as he stood in our place. That covers the law. That that encapsulates everything that God requires and it's given to us. And the Bible says, back in our passage in Galatians, it says, Bear ye one another's burdens. Remind each other, comfort each other in your burdens with what has has been given to you as rest. It says, Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself. We're going to hit that next week. We've been here now a little bit longer than I intended, but uh, we'll stop right there. Does anybody have any questions or comments? All right. We'll hope to pick up there next week, Lord willing. All right, let's stand for prayer. Father, we are gracious. Uh, we are grateful for what you have done. Uh, in your grace and in your mercy for us today, Lord. We are thankful for the Word of God. We are thankful for uh, Christ Himself, who is our righteousness, who is our satisfaction, who is our sanctification, who is our wisdom, who is everything that we need uh, and has been, and as we have been blessed by all things, it's always in Him. And Father, we thank you for this opportunity we've had to come and to be around your word and to be with your people Lord I pray that you just might have edified them today through the message of God's word and Father Lord I pray that you'll just be with us as we leave this place today that you'll keep us safe Lord we just uh, pray for our brethren that are not here we pray for uh, for Kevin and Jacqueline and Alessandro as they are 
off to New York this week, and Lord, we just ask that you would be with them, give them safety for Brother Ed. We ask, Lord, that you be with him. Bless him this week, Lord, as well. We thank you also, Father, for uh, opportunities that you give us to be together with your brethren. May you continue to speak and minister and, and to grow us in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may your spirit uh, be there to guide, us, to guide us and direct us, uh, to work out those words that you have foreordained that we should walk in. And Father, Lord, we just thank you again for all that Christ has done on our behalf and the salvation that's given to us. I pray, Lord, for those that are here and those that are uh, around, Lord, that uh, may be listening or watching, that uh, have yet to be converted. Lord, I pray that you, by your Spirit, might give them eyes to see and ears to hear, and that you might give them the ability uh, to uh, repent, uh, to give them repentance truly in the heart, to turn from their own self-righteousness and to turn to Christ alone for their uh, salvation. Uh, not to be saved, but because they have been saved and that they acknowledge that and they have been given to know that. What a precious gift it is to be given that, Lord. And so we thank you. And it's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen.